0: Bench to Bedside Brown Bag Podcast Series, a podcast series about developed treatment and evidence based protocols developed by Kessler Foundation researchers for rehabilitation therapists. This podcast series is sponsored by Kessler Foundation and has been co organized by Dr. A.M. Barrett of Kessler Foundation, Dr. Kelly Kearns, Dr. Monique Termain, and Ms. Tina Coller of Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation. Our second podcast was presented by Dr. A.M. Barrett, entitled Better Outcomes for Spatial Neglect Rehabilitation. Dr. Barrett is Director of Stroke Research at Kessler Foundation. She's a cognitive and behavioral neurologist and neuroscientist, and also a leader at Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation as Chief of the Neurorehabilitation Program Innovation. To follow along with this podcast, presentation slides can be downloaded from the link in the podcast description. This podcast was recorded at Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation, West Orange, New Jersey, on Friday, March 16, 2018, and was edited and produced by Joan Banksmith, creative producer for Kessler Foundation. Let's listen in.
1: This lecture is, is not just to provide basic level information. But I do want to remind everybody who's here that we're all ambassadors to a community of people who really are not. at all familiar with this. And I know that you know this from working with patients and families and other clinicians in the community and our other collaborators like athletic trainers or other people who might work with patients but who don't have specialized neurologic knowledge. Um, But what's really interesting to me actually is that um, really most people who have this problem right now are not being identified and treated. And so something I wanted to introduce that we'll come back to later is that our Kessler sites Um, And actually, all four of our sites now that are hub sites that offer both inpatient and outpatient training are the the launch sites for a national network, for uh, a practice-based network for inpatient rehabilitation research. Uh, based on studies first in spatial neglect. So there are 10 sites actually that are partnering to look at the impact of treatment, identification and treatment of spatial neglect, because it's really not something that is understood. And many of you may be aware that, for example, when you're using the code for spatial neglect, you're probably one of the only people in the country that are using it. There are probably fewer than I would say 1% of patients with spatial neglect are correctly coded using ICD-9 codes as having that problem. And so what we have is not just a clinician difficulty with identifying it, but our public health system is not set up to provide a lot of resources for these folks. And many of you might know that, for example, um, comorbidities that are considered to increase the cost of care, spatial neglect is not among those comorbidities, and we have things like vocal cord paralysis, but we don't have an obvious thing like spatial neglect. So why would that be, and um, I'm just going to show you guys um, an example. All of us know, I think, that after a brain injury, people can have a problem with reporting, responding, or orienting to um, activities or stimuli in the side of space opposite their brain lesion. They can have asymmetric movements that are functionally disabling, and that's the definition of spatial neglect. Um, and we can show that on paper and pencil kind of tasks, like looking at this picture. So the picture that we're seeing here is called the Ogden picture on the left side. And if you have somebody copy it, when a pe- pe- person has spatial neglect after a right brain stroke, they may have difficulty either being aware of what's on the left side, um, having kind of an internal image of it, or they may have actually difficulty in drawing it, in moving their hand over to the left side. Even the good hand, right? Could, because the problem spatial neglect causes people to have movement asymmetric movements that are related to the, the difficulty. However, it's not usually identified as being disabling because they can see something is really different and really wrong and really disabling, but they're not kind of receiving an explanation that makes sense to them. And so what we know is that when people don't receive explanations, they will mo- find a way to explain it to themselves the problem is that the way that they explain this to themselves may be that my my dad's not trying my dad's not motivated my dad has is impulsive my dad is um you know has memory problems and all of these other things may be to some extent true but they may not be the cause of shaving, forgetting to shave the left side of his face, that's not going to cause him to forget her birthday or her name. Um, she, he remembers her. <laughs> he knows her. Uh, this, um, Her dad is somebody who does not have dementia. He has spatial neglect. So, um, you know, w- I think in the p- delivery of care for these patients, we can really help not just um, to serve the outcomes of these patients in rehabilitation, but we can help the quality of life of these people, their families and our quality of lives as well because these are difficult and vulnerable patients to take care of. So here's another example of I think how it can be difficult to identify um, this problem. So this is Kimberly Reha who's an occupational therapist and also a researcher and she's part of the research group now at the University of Washington and she's asked this patient, who's had a right brain stroke, to put on her glasses. And you see that she's having a lot of difficulty with this task. And what's interesting is that, in my opinion, I haven't done a detailed examination of this patient, exam of this patient, but in my opinion she understands what the instructions were. Uh, She's able to perceive the glasses, Uh, however, if you watch again the movements that she's making. She doesn't make any really, or very little, leftward movement. Her arm stays almost exactly where it is. Her her face moves rightward. But her arm doesn't really go leftward in an arc. In order to do this task, we need not just, we don't really need vision to do this task. And forgive me for the people on the phone, I'm going to demonstrate Um, One time I poked myself in the eye doing this, so I'll I'll try not to do that today. Um, But without my vision, I can still, yay, put on my glasses effectively, right? Um, And unfortunately, this patient is not able to do it. What we see oftentimes in people with spatial neglect is, for example, they may do something like this. And this is a very characteristic sign of spatial neglect called the hanging eyeglasses sign. So for those of you on the phone, if the glasses are kind of halfway on and they're, um, the, the left temple of the glasses is not touching the person's ear, that's a sign that's very um, suspicious for spatial neglect. And again, I think what people are oftentimes taught is that it's a visual problem. And so it's very hard, even for our clinicians, our fellow clinicians, neuro- for neurologists, I think very. Frequently, I get asked this why is it my patient doesn't seem to have a lot of visual problems, and you're saying that they have neglect? Well, the person has this difficulty making movements to the left side, or you know, potentially it could be also related to body attention. We have to make sure of those things. But again, this patient might be thought of as having, you know, problem with impulsivity, a problem with motivation, with attention, concentration. Um, Robin Hedeman on the left side of this slide and Joan Alverso are folks that some of you may know, and they're involved now in the administration of this select um, medical. And they helped us a number of years ago. This was probably back in like 2005, 2006. Um, to and Dr. Chen and her colleagues were able, with their support, to do some evaluation but they really helped us to identify the gap between the patients who might be identified for treatment within the Kessler Institute system and those who were being identified. And what we found was that although about, probably about um, half of stroke patients and about a third of people with TBIs who were in the hospital have symptoms of spatial neglect, that about probably, and and these weren't the same patients that were studied in both both of these studies, but probably between 20 and 50 percent of these people were incompletely documented to some extent. Doing a good job, probably, of figuring out at some point that they were get, that they had this problem, but there was not systematic documentation. And only five of the 74 people that Dr. Chen examined in this um, the records for in this first study uh, actually had an evidence-based kind of functional relevant assessment. So that is problematic if we're going to be pl- basing a plan of care on this. And Dr. Chen and I and a number of our collaborators were able to move forward and develop a process based on feedback that we got from really you all and um, Robin and a number of other f- leaders in occupational therapy at that time, that this, um, te- this test, the Catherine berger scale, was hard for them to u- use. And how many of you now are able to use the Catherine berger scale with the KFNAP? You can hold your hands up. <laughs> How about you guys on the phone? How many of you are using it? Is anybody on the phone? <laughs> They're muted maybe. They probably muted when I scolded them about <laughs> not talking. <laughs> this is not an um,
0: assessment that I'm as familiar with. I only just started with Kessler a little um, less
1: than a year ago. Okay, so that'll be one of the opportunities. when Kate. When Kayla does the demonstration a little later, you'll have an opportunity to ask some questions, and then after this, also, you can get in touch with us and talk further about this no, I'm assessment.: on it. Thank you: Super. Um, so we' started off using this in car- partnerships and research, but then now it's actually being used by a number of you all and your, your colleagues. And people in actually all disciplines of therapy have used this. I don't know if recreational therapists have used it yet. Um, And again, I don't think athletic trainers are using it yet, but I think that um, throughout the country and then throughout the world, there are people who are speech language pathologists, occupational therapists, physical therapists using this tool because it does have what we say again, functional relevance. It has the ability to predict whether or not somebody is gonna have difficulty or an increased burden of care as we know. And what was great in the process of driving this assessment was that Lauren McDonough, Um, and Dr. Chen and a number of us, were able to, and Dr. Dr. Kong, were able to collaborate to identify at the beginning, once people were being regularly identified, to figure out what was the potential impact on their hospital stay at the Kessler Institute. And of course, there are also outpatient impacts, but we don't at this point have an exact set of quantities for that. But you may have heard some of us talking about this paper that Dr. Chen and I and her colleagues published, and uh, we showed that their risk of fall was quite a bit h- higher, that they were staying in the inpatient um, much longer, and they were less likely to go home. So let's take a quick look at, at these kind of patients and, again, talk a little bit about the challenge of treatment. And then you'll get to see the treatment demonstrated. Oops. Sorry on the phone. OK, so this patient is being asked to show where her bed is. And this is as part of the KFNAP. Um, she's doing the navigation item, I believe. This is relatively early in our process of doing this. So she, she, you see that head and eye deviation that's part of the spatial neglect syndrome. Um, again, and here you see a, a potential collision, right? And it's on the right side, but again, related to, this, to the neglect. And there she actually does collide, does touch. Where's your bed, she's asked. And she says it's back there on the left. So she's able to identify where her bed was. It's not that she's blind or that she was unaware. However, she was unable to um, alter her tendency to move rightward and or straight ahead in order to go to her bed, I would argue. But she may have also, of course, had some decreased awareness. And you see in this little snippet, I think what I at least see (laughs) is how labor intensive it really is to take care of these patients. And if one is gonna use a treatment that is based upon reminders or anchors, it's really very um, time intensive and it's very resource, emotional resource intensive. At least that's how I experience it. So offering consistent, um, uh, consistent cues in a way that's actually going to implicitly alter behavior. So all of us know, like in a behavioral, um, in a, a behavioral therapy kind of approach, that we have to be very, very consistent. Um, it's very challenging, and again, it's labor-intensive because we have so many other goals that we need to address in therapy. So um, what I initially in 2002 to 2004, and then our group, and headed by Dr. Chen and others, um, thought about was the fact that we, with another piece of equipment, off-the-shelf optical prisms that people internationally had used, we might be able to make things less um, labor-intensive and less resource, emotional resource intensive, but still achieve the same results or even better results. And this is via a process of prism, what we we'll call prism adaptation therapy. And again, how many of you all are familiar with prism adaptation therapy? Right. So. Many of you, good, excellent. And in prism adaptation therapy, as you know, um, allows patients, and I'm gonna just pass these around for anybody who wants to take a look at them or who hasn't had a chance to look at them. Um, Patients wear off the shelf yoked, meaning that they're the same for both eyes, wedge prisms. We use Bernal prisms in a a (coughs) goggle. And then they have sessions over 10 days um, they have 10 uh, or 14 days, 10 days of treatment. The sessions are brief, as many of you know, and Kayla's going to tell us a lot more about that. But what was exciting to us at the time when we started this was that there was a lot of evidence and there, it just has been piling up. Um, in the laboratory and then also functional studies. Now it's not perfect evidence, uh, but what I've reviewed in the piece of paper for your binders, and for those of you on the phone we can email that out to you if you can let us know if you don't have it, is that there are a number now of consensus recommendations supporting the use of prisms. So there's not just kind of case reports and case studies, there's not just case series and randomized controlled trials, but there are professional association recommendations now. And the American Heart Association in 2016 made, I think, the most important recommendation for people with stroke, which was that, you know, because a lot of other important rehabilitation recommendations were part of that, that it was a class one uh, or class, uh, a level one, class 2A recommendation um, to use a treatment like PRISM adaptation for um, spatial neglect. Okay. So just another word about our network that now we are reaching out both the acute hospital referrers to occupational therapists within the KIR system and then all through the um, different systems. And this is Lauren McDonough again and then Chris Gonzalez-Snyder, who's the AVP for um, uh, programs in the select medical system. Uh, for some of the inpatient rehabilitation facilities and they helped us implement with the first couple other sites in the select medical network and as I mentioned there are now ten sites including two that are outside the select medical network that are um, collaborating to administer these treatments and the reason for that was really to try to get things uniform so that we could you know, I think what's said in a lot of places to have a uniform practice is a way of kind of in- ensuring that your cakes are baked uh, by a controlled way, that the, the worst cake is only a little bit worse than, uh, than the average cake, you hope. Okay, so that's the network as it stands now. And people train are trained through a protocol that um, we can talk more about if you're interested. Um, any of you want to watch our TEDx, haven't watched it yet, please do um, take a look. And uh, this guy is an excellent interviewer, Sanjay Gupta. There's a really fun, if you do a, a Google search, Everyday Health, and Sanjay Gupta and Barrett, you'll find it so um, we're going through the national network and looking at this is why we have a network now not just to implement to get people using the treatments but to actually be able to produce information and we want to show this of course to other hospitals and get them motivated to use it but we also want to show this to payers and unfortunately i'm concerned in the years that come that patients with spatial neglect are going to be vulnerable to have some of their services cut back. We really want to defend the value and quality of care and in inpatient rehabilitation. For people like this fellow, um, Bob Roganday, who re- was one of the first people who received PRISM adaptation, and many of you maybe have heard me tell his story, but because he credits um, he says that because he received prism adaptation he feels that his outcome of neglect was better of spatial neglect was better he has gone back to driving he's completely independent what's really meaningful to me is that he um was able, because he was driving when his parents in Delaware got sick, to go down there twice a week uh, to help them out with shopping and other tasks. So he was able to be a caregiver. And um, as a scientist, I can't tell you that his uh, PRISM therapy um, helped, to, helped him critically. Or what he says is, as a scientist, she won't tell you that, but I will tell you that. So he really feels that it was an important step he took in his, in his recovery. At
0: this point in the presentation, a demonstration was given on what is prison therapy and the tools needed for prison therapy. In the description of this podcast, there is a link to view the video demonstration. There is also a couple of minutes of Q&A after the demonstration to the end of the lecture. For patients that have left um, field cuts and how that comes into play with the effectiveness of the path.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. On that. Oh, thank <laughs> Thank you.
0: Are we under the <laughs> yeah. assumption thank that there is some residual attention, you. even if it's te- if they're technically diagnosed with a field cut? Mm-hmm. Are we under the assumption that there is some type of attention piece, neglected mm-hmm. there anyway, which would be why mm-hmm. they would be
1: for with training? So this is interesting because this just came up yesterday in the community of practice discussions that we have as part of the network of the practice run network, and. Um, The first thing I said, which everybody forgive me, please, is that actually as a clinician, as a neurologist, I've been asked this question many times about whether people can have both a hemianopia and neglect and how can you tell if somebody with a hemianopia has neglect. Um, And uh, so I made a YouTube video about it. (laughs) It's just me as an individual. So if any of you want to take a look at that, please feel free. Um, The question, though, about whether people can have both a, a hemianopia and neglect is the answer is yes, right, so that we all, I think, know that many people with neglect do have hemianopia, depending upon what areas of the brain are damaged. And um, what we have definitely observed in our studies is that people with hemianopia can still improve with, if they have neglect. Um, and what was talked about yesterday by the practice, the community of practice, by the experts who are using it or by the clinician, expert clinicians like Kayla who are using it uh, as part of the network, is that um, people felt that both the hemianopia and the neglect would be benefit from treatment. And so the problem I think is that oftentimes they might have some sense from repeating the KFNAP, for example, whether the neglect improved, but it's maybe they're not looking at changes in the hemianopia. If the person didn't seem a lot functionally different, um, you know, was that a barrier for the person to get further better or not? Um, is that part of, Does that address your question yeah, or is there I another?
0: Mm you know, very often we will see some more changes, that Mm -hmm. there's less issues, so I don't know if it's due to the system, or
1: if it's just over time, because usually there is less Right. That's a very good question, because I think that many of the studies that have been done on improvement of hemianopia with therapy haven't really... Have n't really taken into account that big changes in neglect um, really can influence hemianopia testing, and in particular, if they have testing that's computerized, uh, that's not probably valid in somebody with neglect. You know, it probably measures both neglect and hemianopia. Right. Um, Well, you don't know that. That's what I'm saying, though. I, I guess I'm saying that their testing may have changed because of changes in the neglect. Unless they were tested, there are two methods of testing hemianopia, and one involves a person holding a thing. Yeah, I can't remember now what it's called with that big old... Um, the, the, the large round thing, that, can, can any of you remember it's a permit, there are two types of perimetry testing. I think Goldman is the automated one and the other one involves actually a person who would hold it up, uh, hold up the like stimulus. Presentation testing? Right. There are mm-hmm. two different procedures that ophthalmologists do. Mm-hmm. And only one of them is valid in somebody with neglect and only with a properly trained technician. So if the technician doesn't know what neglect is and they're just holding it up, that's not valid because the person with neglect is not going to see the ones on the left side well. And, or they're not can respond to them. Uh, so you may be seeing changes in either automated or incorrectly given perimetry that are just the result of neglect improving. And that's actually kind of some what people have said about techniques like the Novavision Technique too is that they maybe didn't take into account that somebody's neglect may have improved with uh, Novavision um, tr- intervention. I have a question about how often it may be repeated because we've had mm-hmm. clients who He's yeah. recommended to come back. Again. What would be your um, comment on that? So
0: I've had two patients that I've had. One of them had two back-to-back sessions of the 10 sessions of PRISM. Um, but he had so many other cognitive issues that I he saw improvement the first round, but then on a second reassessment of the KFNF afterwards, there wasn't. Mm-hmm. He actually went back to his original score. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a lot of interplay in terms of like. Cognitive issues with that. Mm-hmm. Um, functionally, the, there was some improvement like during the actual training.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, I had another patient who had three rounds of Prism
1: mm-hmm. and
0: he was about the same between the second and the third.
1: Yeah. So the the literature doesn't specifically guide us. Mm-hmm. However, as a clinician, I think there's enough that comes out of the literature that would justify mm-hmm. uh, repeated rounds mm-hmm. of treatment basically because we don't have a whole lot of things that we can offer and the the likelihood of hurting somebody with presumed treatment is very low. And there are actually a couple different studies. So there was one study that was done um, by Humphreys in which somebody received several different rounds of treatment Mm -hmm. and the patient, as you said, got worse in between the rounds of treatment. And what one of our colleagues in Italy has said is that they see that very frequently. I don't think they've published that, but they've suggested that this should be kind of a maintenance treatment that some people would need to receive once a month, once a year, Mm -hmm. um, or at regular intervals. And they, compared it to diabetes that, you know, you'd be controlling the neglect rather than curing the neglect. Um, But, as I said, the literature doesn't give us specific guidance. Well, the other only last comment I wanted to make was something that came up when I was discussing um, this with the folks at National Rehab Hospital uh, recently. And one of my colleagues there uh, asked about, um, so I have a speech pathologist colleague who trained with us, Elizabeth Galetta, and she's now involved with the aphasia patient treatment um, clinic at NYU. And um, she, uh, when she was here as a um, fellow observed that people with neglect had very high rates of dysphagia, and she wondered if some of that was related to their to head turning or to you know body attention. There may be a number of reasons. But what Elizabeth was actually quite focused on was when people had a lot of dysphagia and they weren't able to use the prop- the appropriate chin tuck. Would prism adaptation treatment be useful to those patients? And um, my colleague at St. another colleague at At National Rehab Hospital, asked me the same question. As far as I know, that's not been used, but theoretically, that would be something to consider if patients cannot use a left-sided chin tuck. um, Whether or not uh, prism adaptation treatment would be useful in that as as a speech and language therapy intervention. What do you think about that, (laughs) Kayla? I think that's kind of crazy. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. I mean, I think that there are so many people with dysphagia after stroke, and it's really kind of a uh, morbid problem. For more information about the research of Kessler
0: Foundation, go to www.kesslerfoundation.org. That's www.kesslerfoundation.org.